At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. What a story you just told, and I hope that's true in your life, that you've experienced that power of salvation that's come only through the blood of Jesus Christ, shed generously for you, because uh, he deeply loves you, created in the image of God, deeply marred by sin, and yet loved by the Father, demonstrate his love for us while we were in that sin, Christ died for us. Proving he conquered death through his death by rising from the dead and lives today as our Lord and Savior. Man, I'm so glad for that, aren't you? Are you? And it, make, it makes a difference every day, doesn't it? I mean, every day where you don't have to feel like I have to earn God's favor I, I can live out of his favor, right? I mean, I'm, he, he loves me and he's pleased with me, so that kind of tells me how I live today. Not to earn his favor, but because he's given me his favor. And that's freedom. That's freedom. Well, turn your Bibles to James chapter 2, if you would, please. James chapter 2, as we continue our series in this wonderful book of wisdom here in the New Testament. Uh, we... As a family, watched the remake of Disney's Beauty and the Beast recently, just the other day. It's a pretty compelling story. How many know the story of Beauty and the Beast? Uh-huh. Some of you, some of you think, yeah, I think I live with him. No, no, it's different kind of story. But here's, here's how it begins. Listen to this. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. But then, one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his heart, and as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived there. And that's how the story begins. And then it goes on, right? And you're thinking, wow, this is better than any sermon. Let's keep going. No, no, hold on. That's all you get. If you want to want to watch more of the story, you're going to have to go on Disney Plus or wherever it's presently playing. But it's a compelling story. It's a story that... Um, sets up this great, that, that narrator sets up this great storyline 
that tugs at something on the human heart. We do not like it when there's injustice, when the weak are being maligned or, or ostracized. There's something in us as humans that says that's not right. We should do something about that. But the story of Beauty and the Beast goes on to kind of portray that actually it's a mirror to a tendency that we all can struggle with. Even as believers in Jesus, we can disdain it when we see it in others, and we cannot even notice it when it's true in and of ourselves. We tend to move towards living like the beast when it seems like there might be an advantage to be gained by preferring those that have something to offer us. And James speaks to that. James provides us with godly wisdom on how we're supposed to view one another. Maturing faith is what we'll learn today. Maturing faith sees the soul past the shell of the exterior. James calls us to live wisely and to see the soul that's beyond the exterior. Here's how James says it. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, here, sit in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with the evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said... Do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, then you've become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak, and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Quite a powerful and convicting passage that James gives, and pretty practical, wouldn't you say? James comes right out in black and white and forbids you and me and all those that would read this letter, all believers in Jesus scattered throughout the world, he forbids us, through the inspiration of the Spirit, to show partiality to other people. 
to value them based on their exterior or on their circumstances or their ability to benefit your life. He says, it has no part in the kingdom of God. This is not how we are to live. And he does it by painting this scene. And it's a scene that you can probably envision. Even as I read it, you were probably picturing this assembly. Most would assume he's talking about the assembly of the saints. Um, Probably wasn't a room like this with people sitting in rows facing a stage. It was probably more like you would see maybe in your life group, if you're part of one, where people come into your house and you gather in your biggest room. And there's some chairs, but they're kind of awkward chairs because probably not very many sitting rooms in a, in a house are designed for like 40, 50 people. And so they're kind of crammed in trying to find a spot. And James says, when you're assembling together and a rich man comes, then, and you offer him one of the best seats, whereas a poor man comes in and you tell him, well, just go stand in the corner or sit on the floor in the hallway. James says, you have dishonored that poor man. All this is taking place in the Roman culture that had this patron-client type of structure. So the patron, the wealthy patron, is this person that had more means than other people. He had higher political clout, had more influence, had more to offer other people. And so the poor would view him as somebody they should extend loyalty and kindness and preferential treatment to. Because if they do, he would be more apt to offer to them maybe finances or privilege or some other positive deed for their kindness to him. So it was a culture that existed and um, thrived under this idea. There's two, there's two main classes of people. The people that have and the people that don't have. And those that don't, if they honor the ones that have, the ones that have will honor the ones that don't have, and society goes on. And James says, don't get caught up in the culture that's broken and oppressive to people. Because though you think you might have advantage by showing honor to the rich man, don't you know that it's that rich man that's lording over you and taking advantage over you. You're feeding into a broken, degrading type of culture. So instead, when a wealthy patron enters worship, and a poor man enters worship, view them the same. And somebody reading this in that culture may think, well, then how do you decide? How do you decide who gets the chair? And James makes very clear that in that scenario, when you're preferring the one with wealth, you are forgetting the other person in the room. Look back at that passage. Go ahead and look in James 2. Right? And 
as you look, starting in verse 1 and going into that scenario that he portrays with an assembly, a wealthy man and a poor man, who else does he mention? He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, when you're assembling, in essence, don't forget there's someone else in the room. And when you have the tendency, like most of the culture does, to try to measure, okay, who has something to offer and who doesn't, don't forget that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is in the room. And compare who he is and the wealth that he possesses and the the the, the standing that he has. Don't forget his place and how everybody else would measure up to him. In fact, he says, he says, he describes him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Literally, that phrase is the Lord of the glory. The Lord of the glory, of the Shekinah, of the glory that filled the temple. Remember when you read in Scripture, when Solomon dedicated the temple and the Shekinah of the glory of God filled that place. Or, or remember when Jesus took the inner circle, James, Peter, James, and John, up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transfigured before them, and they saw his glory. James says, James says there's someone in the room. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the glory. So don't think that anybody has the privilege of the better chair. Because only Jesus has the place of honor in your assembly. Isn't that a beautiful picture? With this, with this scenario, as you gather with your life group or your worship gathering or with your circle of friends, know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the glory, is in the room. So how should I honor everyone that's in the room. Not giving preferential treatment because somebody wears name brands and somebody doesn't. Compare name brands to the Lord of the glory. Nobody has a name brand except the Lord of the glory and those he gave his name to. So in essence, everyone has the name brand because he's marked you with his name. And he's marked everyone with his name as he created them in his image. So when you gather with others, know, James is saying, know that Jesus is in the room. Because Jesus is the one that said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. Where Jesus said to the believer, Go into all the world, for lo, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. As the psalmist says, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. As he said to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews that are suffering and those even facing prison, he says, I don't have to fear 
because he has promised, I will never leave you. No, I will never forsake you. So Jesus is in the room. Give him honor and filter everything you do through what honors him. So students, when you're at school and you're questioning how should I treat these people at my school or adults when you're at work or you're deciding what kind of friendliness to extend to people that you're encountering, when you're treating people in the grocery store in the neighborhood, James says, first of all, don't measure people by what they can give you. Don't measure people by what they can give you. James reminds us that here in verse, was it verse 5? God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. James had learned this from Jesus just by looking back to what disciples did Jesus pick to follow him? Was it Time Magazine's top 10 influencers in the culture? Oh, he chose some Unknown fishermen and maybe some known tax collectors and some wanted zealots. And he gathered them. None of them would have met that list of these are the guys that are going to influence work. These are the wealthy patrons. Gather them and you'll have power. Now, as James looked at the disciples Jesus chose, he saw men and women that were marginalized, pushed to the side, Ordinary people with nothing humanly to bring as an advantage. Those are the ones Jesus chose. Even James, James himself, stepbrother of Jesus. Here he is penning these words, this letter, to the, to the believers scattered around because of persecution. Whether he, whether he realized it at the time, maybe that's up for debate in your mind that he was writing the words of Scripture. But to think that here was the son of a poor carpenter from Nazareth being used to pen the words of Scripture. I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We think of that being used for Jesus but it's true of his stepbrother too. And James says it just doesn't make sense. Everything I, I look at when I see what Jesus does, I see him using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So why in the world would we think, let's look at the, the profound things in the world to try to do great things for the kingdom of God. That just is not how Jesus has worked historically. In fact, Jesus taught that in the pagan world, greatness is defined as the ability to lord over others, right? And then he says, but in my kingdom, I'm telling you that greatness takes the posture of a servant and it serves the least of these. Like, I've come to serve you. You ask yourself, who, who deserves the best chair? Jesus had the best chair, and he stepped out of it, right? Didn't he, didn't he empty himself of everything, all that glory and all that he deserved? He, he didn't consider that something to be clung to, but he emptied himself, and he came down to earth, and he stood in the corner. 
He sat on the floor. He washed the feet. He served the prisoners and the, the broken and lame. And he set the prisoners free. And he proclaimed freedom to the captive. He healed the sick. He says, this is, this is how I work. So church, don't, don't try some other plan by preferring the wealthy and the wealthy patrons in your midst because that's not what God does. Now he chooses whom he chooses. And so some will have means and some won't, but, but it's not based on what they have because he sees the character of the heart. So the next time you hesitate to show honor to someone because they have nothing to offer you, remind yourself that Jesus gave his life for you when you had nothing to offer him. James says, don't measure people by what they can give you. And then he, in verse 8, he makes sure we know that we need to measure our actions according to the royal law. You see that verse 8? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressions, as transgressors. And then he gives this example. Take someone that would say, well, I won't commit murder. I've just committed adultery. Well, the reality is you've broken the whole law because you've broken part of it. And that's true with partiality for all those that think it doesn't really matter does it i mean this is trivial stuff you know as a student goes to school and uh, kind of joins the crowd and mocking a certain group of people or a certain person that's that's pushed to the corner that's not a big deal it's not hurting anybody james says actually that's you're breaking the whole law what's a royal law a royal law is the law that supersedes all other laws. And as Jesus said, the law and the prophets can all be wrapped up with these two laws. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James says, measure your actions not according to what culture does, but according to what the royal law says. Are you loving one another as yourself? It's even interesting when you think of his words, love your neighbor as yourself. The man in the story when Jesus gave that discourse asked him, well, who's my neighbor? Right? And then Jesus tells a wonderful story of the, the good Samaritan revealing that the one who truly loved his neighbor was the one that reached out and showed honor to his enemy, to the one whose his culture would disdain and push to the margins and not even allowed to walk through his town. Jesus says, this is your neighbor. This is what I'm saying. The royal law is to love those that culture says you shouldn't love and love them as you love yourself, or as Jesus then he, he, he raised it to another level with his disciples when he said, love one another as I have loved you. So ask ourselves, as Jesus watches my reactions towards the people I encounter, does it fulfill the royal law of loving one another? 
Thirdly, James reveals the importance of measuring others by God's standard. Measure one another by God's standard. And with that, we think, oh, good, yeah, that's right, because God expects perfection. And if that person isn't perfect, I can hold them to that. And I can kind of say, yeah, you're a jerk, because you're not fulfilling everything you should do. Right? You're broken and you're a mess. But here's God's standard. Verse 13, he says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hey, what, what does that even mean? Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is pressing into a principle that Jesus taught, even as he taught on forgiveness. Do you remember when he gave his pattern for prayer? He says, when you pray, pray like this. A Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he gives the commentary by saying, so if you, because if you don't forgive those who sin against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Jesus taught this principle that if you are loved much, you will love much. If you embrace this amazing concept of forgiveness, how much God has forgiven you, you will forgive others. So if you're not forgiving others, that's evidence that you are not, you're not understanding how much God has forgiven you. So if, if you're not forgiving others, you have an experience of forgiveness of God. And here he's speaking of treatment of others. He's revealing God's plan as, as the holy, perfect God looks down at a sinful humanity. God didn't take pleasure in their destruction, though it's what they deserved. But he takes pleasure in their repentance and their turning to him to where Jesus would say, so the Son of Man has not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's standard is mercy and grace. That God doesn't have this idea that if you don't measure up, I'll squash you. His his heart for us is, I know you don't measure up, so I'm going to step in there, and I'm going to be squashed on your behalf so you can measure up, so I can give you the rightness of Jesus, so I'll forgive, and I'll cleanse, and I'll show mercy and grace. And James says to one another, that's how we measure ourselves, by the mercy that God demonstrated to us. So if you're not showing mercy to others, God's not showing mercy to you. I was thinking this week as I was contemplating this, this passage and how hard it is to maintain that consistency in honoring all people regardless. I mean, sometimes it's easy because everybody's kind of close. But then sometimes you encounter 
interactions where you know maybe there will be some taking away from other times. So sometimes it's so easy to measure, well, what will gain me the best or the most? And you go there and how much you know that's not right. I was, anyway, I was contemplating the journey of this and even in church ministry. And I was thinking of when God began to break my heart as a pastor for this. I was pastoring in a previous ministry and God began to show me that we as a church had begun to view ourselves as a fortress, you know, as a safe place, safety from the brokenness of the world, right? You come together and, and we enjoy time together and we're not, you're not struggling with some of the junk that's out there in our world. And so instead of viewing ourselves as more the hospital or a place of refuge or a place or a mission sending agency, I began to view our church family as kind of a fortress. I began to see how that broke the heart of God. And um, as I looked around our neighborhood, we had this, um, this facility just two blocks down the street. Is a facility, a drop-in facility for those that have mental illnesses. Um, and God allowed me to form a friendship with one of the, the folks in the facility. And there certainly wasn't a person that anyone in, in the church would think, hey, there's a lot of potential here. But God just granted me a, a spirit of compassion. And as we formed a friendship, he invited me to start a Bible study in that facility. In order to be part of the facility, you had to have a mental illness. And I figured, well, if I'm a pastor, that's a sign of some kind of mental illness. <laughs> so I probably qualify. So, so we put a couple flyers out. He invited some friends. And we met in their, their smoking room and around a table and started a study of the book of Philippians. And there was about six or eight people that began to come and um, find community there and, and positive messages. And we had a chance to share Jesus with them. And as Christmas approached, we started to plan our Christmas banquet, which our Christmas banquets were something, you know, something to see. It was elegant, and it was formal, and it was, you know, it was beautifully decorated and high-class dinner. And I began to think about that and think, why? And if Jesus was throwing a party, is this what he would do? So I talked to my friend and said, what, what would you think about inviting the folks from from the facility to come to our dinner. He said, oh, we can invite them. And I went to the church planning team and said, hey, I got an idea. What if, what if we put away the, the crystal and the, um, the silver and, and teacups? What, what, if, what if instead we, we provide like a dinner that folks in our community and from that facility would, be, would feel comfortable at? coming to and some hesitated right this was this was a tradition but most of them most of them thought that sounds great 
And so we worked towards that, and we invited um, a handful of them, and they invited others, and, and it came time for the Christmas party, and I asked one of my friends to drive the church van down there to pick up whoever needed transportation, and I was standing at the door when he arrived, and he had 12 people emptied off of that van. I thought, that's great. And the driver said, I'll be right back. I said, where are you going? He said, there's more that want to come. And as he drove away, I thought, yeah, I, th I think this is more like the party that Jesus would plan. It wasn't a perfect party, and I'm still working through things, but I began to experience what I think was a little more of the love of Jesus for his world. That his love isn't for the shiny and the polished alone. His and actually, didn't he say that I haven't come for the well, I've come for the sick. That's what a physician does. I come for those that, that truly need, need a Savior. So as a church, to take a phrase from Beauty and the Beast, let's kill the beast. <laughs> let's kill the beast. The beast that tends to rise up and view others by external standards, right? That, that mindset that says, well, I'll spend time and I'll invest time into you if there's something to gain. And let's, let's leave here as people that leave the beast behind. That instead of becoming impatient, with the person in front of us in line that can't speak our language and they're slowing everybody down? What if, what if instead we step up and we help them, believing that God honors the care for the foreigner? What if instead we cared for the marginalized, instead of avoiding the one who no one knows, so we can spend time and engage with the one who's really connected? What if instead we honor both people believing that God's mercy supersedes all of that? What if we became a church that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your place on our social ladder, that whether you have something to offer or whether you don't, what if they received the same love of Jesus? Because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. How can we do less? How can we do less than loving the world who desperately needs a Savior? Father, would you help us see the world as you do? Father, forgive us for that human tendency to look and consider what gain there is by extending something to someone. Father, would you humble us Remind us of our unworthiness of your love so that we can demonstrate love to all that we encounter. Give us the ability and the wisdom, Lord, to know how to communicate that love. Protect us from, as James describes it, the sin of partiality. I pray that, Lord, as people come into our assembly, that they would feel the love of Jesus from each one of us. 
But then as we leave our assembly and we go into the world, Lord, believing that you are with us, I pray, Father, that we would honestly and authentically demonstrate your love to everyone we meet. Help us to know how to, how to see the world as you do, to demonstrate the love that you've given to us. You've given us the capacity. It's not like we have to conjure it up in our, ourselves. You've given us your love. You've filled us with the Holy Spirit, empowering us to love with joy and patience, with self-control and kindness and mercy. Your Holy Spirit empowers your church. So, Lord, fill us. As we prayed at the beginning, revive your church. May we love people in a way that honors you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.